I would invite you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, as we continue our study and really finish this section on the qualifications and the responsibilities of elders. I've been very encouraged these last couple weeks uh, because there have been three men who have reached out to me, letting them know that they have had a growing interest in becoming an elder uh, at Hope Bible Church. And uh, while, you know, every one of us is at a different place and uh, training and, and um, growth is required, as we'll talk about in this message, uh, it's still encouraging to see how the Lord is working. And uh, if you men have a desire, a growing desire, if you sense the Lord is calling you uh, to the ministry of eldership, I would just encourage you to talk to me or to Pastor Allen, and we can talk to you about that, what's involved in terms of the preparation and equipping and training. Um, you know, the desire to be an elder it is not so much a qualification, but it is essential. Uh, we have to have a, a desire in order to be an elder uh, because... 1 Timothy 3.1 says, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Now that work desires there is uh, the Greek word epithumia, which means a strong, compelling desire. Uh, when used negatively, it's often translated lust. But positively, it's a desire that compels one to action. Um, there are many joys in ministry and serving the Lord, but the nature of the work of shepherding and pastoral ministry is such that you're often encountering situations where you're working with those who are suffering greatly or stubbornly sinning. You often find yourself walking in the or wading in the waters of lives that have been decimated by sin. And that's not the kind of work that one does for fun. It's the work you do because God has compelled you to do it. So a strong desire is essential if one is going to be faithful in the face of difficulty. Now, last week we looked at the qualifications of elders as Paul listed them here in Titus. And we considered how they really boil down to this reality that elders must be men who have manifested in their life that they reject the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they live out the truth of God's revelation. And in living that out, they have produced a life, or I should say the Spirit has produced in them a life of godliness and Christ-like character. Last week I made the statement that elder, the elders chosen will determine the future of the church. The elders chosen will determine the future of the church. Choose the right elders, and the church will remain true to its calling and mission. It will do the work of Christ with strength and strength and vitality, choosing the wrong elders on the other hand, and will the church will suffer all manners of problems that will hinder its effectiveness and its witness in the world. Now our text makes that very clear. We're going to look at one final qualification that Paul lists there at the beginning of verse 9, and then the two primary roles elders have, whether they are financially supported by the church or not. Now, it's not been my intention in this series to provide an exhaustive look at what does the Scripture say about eldership. 
Uh, we've mentioned from time to time 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is another passage where Paul lists the qualifications of elders, but there are multiple passages where the, the roles and responsibilities of elders are explained and expanded in more detail. In fact, it might surprise you because of how often we use the word pastor, that that title for elders is only used once in Scripture, and that's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Uh, without going into a lot of detail, I just wanted to point out that in Scripture, the titles elder, pastor, and overseer are all used interchangeably. That's why here at HBC, we call our elders pastor. We don't make a distinction between, oh, the pastor is the, the guy who works for the church and the elders are the men who do some other occupation but uh, lead the church. No, we're all pastors. We're all elders. We're all overseers. In fact, here in Titus chapter 1, if you've noticed, we have two of those titles mentioned. In verse 5, you see that Paul refers to elders. That's presbyteros in the Greek, but translated as elders. And then in verse 7, he refers to the same men as overseers. The Bible makes no distinction between the role of elders who are supported by the church and the role of elders who aren't. Really, the difference between staff, as you might say, or non-staff pastors is not the, the function they fulfill in the church, but the amount of time they have to give to their function. And then once you have a group of men who are together working to oversee and lead the church, there obviously is a kind of a, a delineation of particular responsibilities, and that, that distribution is based more or less on a man's particular giftedness and strengths. But their role is essentially the same. And so what we want to draw from this text, just verse 9 today, we need to understand that this applies to all elders all pastors, not just the men who are on staff, but any man who would be appointed as an elder in the church. If the Lord plants in any of you men a desire to be an elder, then that desire has to be to do the very things that Paul says here in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. If this doesn't stir your soul, if this isn't something that you long to do, then whatever desire you have, it's not to be an elder. Maybe you want to serve as a deacon or in some other role or function in the church, which is good. But these particular roles must be the desire of your heart if you want to be an elder. Now, with that in mind, we're going to draw from this text three requirements of elders. Three requirements of elders. These requirements are really one qualification and two roles. Uh, these requirements are not exhaustive, but they are the primary requirements that elders must meet to faithfully shepherd the flock of God. So let's read the, the entirety of chapter 1 just for the sake of context, kind of get, get it all into our minds, and then we'll spend the rest of our time studying verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if 
any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Again, studying chapter 1, verse 9 today, Three requirements of elders. The first requirement is that elders must be devoted to the truth. Elders must be devoted to the truth. We see that very clearly in verse 9 when he says, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. That participle, holding fast, uh, comes from the word to have. To have. A A person who holds fast to something doesn't just let it rest leisurely in their hand. No, they embrace it. They hang on to it so that nothing can take it out of their hand. Why would someone hold fast to something? It's because they are devoted to it. They're devoted to it. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted, there's the same word, devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, he says. He's saying here that you can have God in your life and you can have money in your life. The question is, who is going to have your allegiance? Who is going to have your loyalty? When life gets hard and you find yourself in a desperate situation, who are you going to run to for help? Are you going to run to the Lord? Are you going to cling to Him as your all-sufficiency? Or are you going to look to money as if somehow that will solve all your problems? Will your heart be at peace no matter what the circumstances are? Because if you have God, you have everything you need. Or will you only be at peace in your heart if you have enough money in the bank? What Jesus is saying with regard to devotion to God or money, Paul is saying with regard to being devoted to the truth. A man can affirm sound doctrine. They can say, yes, I believe that. But does he love the truth? Can he say like the psalmist, I cling to your testimonies? Think about how this works in real life. Again, we can have a stated theology, what we would verbally affirm about the sovereignty of God. 
But when tragedy strikes, what does our response say about what we really believe? Do you respond as if you live in a world ruled by sovereign God who is loving and compassionate and not only knows that you exist, but he knows the very number of hairs on your head and he cares for every detail of your life and he is working out every good purpose for you. Is that how you respond? Or do you respond as if no one is in control or at least no one who cares about you? We can have a stated theology, but the question is, what is our functional theology? What conception of reality guides our life? Now, notice what, how, or, uh, how Paul describes the object of devotion there in verse 9. We already read it. He says that the object to which we hold fast must be the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. The faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. Now, the faithful word is really the ongoing proclamation of the apostolic teaching. These believers on the island of Crete did not have the New Testament like you and I had, and so they were entirely dependent on men like Titus and others who had heard and learned the apostolic teaching and were proclaiming it Sunday after Sunday as well as in homes and in private. A qualified elder could not be like the rebellious men described later in the chapter who gave their attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men and departed away from the truth. No, he was to be devoted to that which was consistent with apostolic teaching. This commandment to hold fast to the faithful word here, similar to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brethren, stand firm, hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. The apostolic teaching was conveyed either directly by the apostles' mouths or by the mouths of those who learn from the apostles, or by letters which we have preserved for us in the New Testament. Apart from the apostles, it was not the people who had the authority, it was the message. That's why Paul wrote in his first letter to the Thessalonians, test everything, examine everything, hold fast to what is good. Now, this dynamic of stated theology, what you say you believe, and functional theology, how you function in light of what you actually believe, is critical for men who would be elders in Christ's church. Years ago, I was listening to a pastor at a large church in my hometown, large evangelical church, and he was assigned the uh, topic of marriage. And as he got up and began to speak, he explained that as he was beginning to prepare for his sermon, he got down from his shelf all of the marriage books that he had, and he started flipping through them. And as he got through those, he didn't find any particular inspiration about what he should say. And so he swiped them off the desk and said, so I'm just going to tell you my story. Now that man and that church had a stated theology that the word of God is inspired and inerrant. But at least in that particular message, the functional theology was God's word has nothing to say that's helpful to us. He was not devoted to the word of God. Elders are often in the position of giving advice and counsel. 
It could be marriage advice or parenting advice or counsel regarding jobs or future decisions or how to handle conflicts. If an elder gives advice or when an elder gives advice, what he says, what comes out of his mouth will reflect. Is he devoted to the truth or is he just giving his own opinion? As Paul gave his farewell address to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he used strong words to describe those who had received the word, who had received that apostolic preaching, but kind of went away from it. He said this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He knew that after his departure, which he was leaving them in that moment, and they would never see his face again, that there were some, even among themselves, elders of the church of Ephesus, who would depart from the scripture and would lift up their own ideas and opinions and would pull people along away from the word of God. One who is devoted will not set aside the truth of God for anything, not even to save his own life. Countless stories can be told of men and women over the centuries who refuse to deviate from their convictions to save their life. We have many of those stories recorded for us in Hebrews chapter 11. The author there describes some of them by saying others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All of these, it says, having gained approval through their faith. They believed God. They trusted the word of God. They lived out that truth and did not let go of it to save their life. Now, even though, thank the Lord, we do not face those dangers here today in our nation, in our church, in our culture. Elders, those who would be elders, must have that same undying devotion to the truth. And the reason being devoted to the truth is necessary is because you cannot fulfill the role of an elder without it. Now, again, these roles that Paul goes on to describe here in verse 9 are not exclusive or exhaustive, but they are primary of utmost importance. The second requirement then, the first role of an elder that Paul identifies here is that elders must be able to minister the truth. Elders must be able to minister the truth. Look again at verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine. There it is. 
exhort in sound doctrine. I don't know how that word exhort strikes you. It seems to me that sometimes when we hear that term, we think of it as something strong, almost even to the level of offensive. Uh, When we say someone has the gift of exhortation, usually what we mean is someone is strong in their declarations. They have no qualms about telling you to repent of your sin. And that would be an accurate understanding of exhortation, but that's not the only thing that Paul has in mind here when he uses that term. The Greek word here is one that you might be familiar with or have heard before. It's It's the verb parakaleo, parakaleo. And perhaps you've heard it in a different form, paraclete paraclete. The paraclete is the title given to the Holy Spirit by Jesus. In John 14, when he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That's the term. That he may be with you forever. Jesus went on to say, but the helper, there it is again, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to minister the truth of God in our hearts. The role of elders is to proclaim the truth of God publicly and privately so that as the Word of God is received, the Holy Spirit can then take that and minister to the heart of the believer. And with that in mind, I want to walk through five nuances, I guess you could say, of what it means that elders are to parakaleo in sound doctrine, that they are to exhort in sound doctrine. It's a term that's used widely in the New Testament with a variety of nuances, and these, I think, are helpful in understanding the role of elders. Parakaleo is used, in the, uh, used with regard to John the baptizer, saying that with many exhortations, he continued to preach to the people. Now, if you know anything about John the Baptist, other than what he looked like in his weird uh, outfits, uh, he was a bold and consistently fearless preacher. He would preach to the people as he was preparing them to receive the Messiah. Uh, He would excoriate the Pharisees who would come to him, and he would say, "Who, who charged you to come for the forgiveness of your sins. That's not an exact quote. I totally messed that up. (laughs) He also exhorted the government leaders, Herod, and as a result ended up losing his head. But he was fearless. He warned the religious leaders and he spoke fearlessly to the governing authorities. Paul commands Titus to speak the truth in the same way. He said in Titus chapter 2, verse 15, these things... Speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, he's not saying to be mean about it. He is saying that Titus's teaching must come with strength. That there must be no misunderstanding in how you communicate the truth as to how serious this really is. Parakaleo means to exhort in the typical way that we think of it. It also means, and it's used by Paul, with the meaning of comfort. With the meaning of comfort. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4, we find this blessed passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction 
with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see that word just used over and over and over again. One of the common symptoms of false teaching is that it tends to bring grief to the heart. Such was the case with the Thessalonian believers who were being told by false teachers that those who had died would never be reunited with them once again, that it was done, it was over. And Paul told them about the truth of the resurrection that when Christ comes, the dead in Christ will rise first and we will all be together with the Lord. And he ended that section by saying, comfort one another with these words. Elders are called to come alongside those who are suffering and grieving and comfort them. When God's people are filled with sadness, when a believer is wrought with sorrow over sin, when a person is disheartened by their circumstances, elders must be able to minister the truth to broken hearts. Third, parakaleo also means to encourage, to encourage. Slightly different nuance here. We read this in Acts 11.23, when Barnabas arrived and witnessed of the grace of God, meaning he was telling them of how the Lord had been saving Jews and also Gentiles, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with, the re- with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. This was a time when the church had been scattered out of Jerusalem because of the martyrdom of Stephen. There was the threat of increased persecution. So the the thousands, if not tens of thousands of Christians by that point who had all remained in the city left. And when Barnabas came back to the city where persecution was still a high danger, he was telling these Jerusalem believers of all that God was doing in the scattered world as he and Peter and Paul had gone out. Excuse me, Paul hadn't gone out by this point. And as he was coming back, he was saying, look at what God is doing. Remain steadfast. He encouraged them because of the threat of danger. Undoubtedly, many were struggling with fear. Who would be next? They needed encouragement. The same was true of the believers who received the letter of Hebrews. They had come to Christ, but they were receiving, experiencing persecution by the Jews who were trying to convince them to go back to Moses. They knew that if they just rejected Christ, where at least said, okay, at least uh, follow the law, obey the law, then all the persecution would be over. And so they were tempted to sin in their suffering. And so the author wrote, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As believers, we need to encourage one another because we can often be tempted to walk away from the faith in the face of difficulty. Elders must have facility with the Word of God to be able to encourage the faint-hearted, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. You know, encouragement that is limited to just a slap on the back and, I know you can do it. That's not biblical encouragement. Biblical encouragement reminds the fearful of our faithful God. Biblical encouragement fills the gaps of the soul with the truth of Scripture. It clarifies muddied thinking with the filter of Scripture. And it straightens twisted thinking with the anvil of the Bible. Knowing how to apply the medicine of God's Word is required for elders to effectively encourage those under their care. 
So parakaleo means to exhort, to comfort, to encourage. It also means to implore, to make an urgent plea. When Paul was wrestling with this thorn in the flesh that was hindering his ministry, he says, concerning this, I implored the Lord that he take it away three times. He desperately cried out to God, please take this away. Or the man in Jairus, uh, the man named Jairus in Luke chapter 8, his daughter was dying and he came to Jesus. And it says he implored him to come with him. You can only imagine if your child is dying, what kind of desperation, what kind of a, a desperate plea you would make to Jesus to come and to heal your daughter. It's that same kind of desperation that leads Paul to say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. After spending those first three chapters talking about what God has done for us in Christ, who we are as believers who've been adopted and rescued and saved and redeemed, he implores us to walk in a manner that's consistent with what Christ has done for us. That's a desperate plea. When a believer is heading down the path of destruction, that's not the time for soft suggestions. When a person's soul is at stake, we must speak the truth in love, yes, but we must speak it with urgency. Elders should not be afraid to plea with a sinner to turn from their wicked way. Instead, they should be filled with passion and implore believers to do what is right rather than to go down the path of sin. Now, obviously, this imploring should not be done on the basis of personal opinion, but with the word of God. At the Church of Philippi, another uh, synonym, if you will, for, for implore is to urge. This Church of Philippi, there were two prominent women who were friends and ministry partners of Paul, and they were in conflict with each other. And this conflict came to Paul's attention, and so he wrote to them specifically, called them out publicly and said, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony with the Lord. When you get sinners together, even though we are Christians, we will experience conflict. And so elders must know how to implore and to urge believers to preserve the unity of the Spirit with the bond of peace, as it says in Ephesians 4. Parakaleo can mean to exhort, to comfort, to encourage, to implore. And finally, it can mean to appeal, to appeal. And this is a slightly different nuance from implore. As an apostle, Paul had the authority to command people to do whatever he felt God would call them to do, right? It wasn't about his own opinion, but he, was, he had the authority to command people to obey God. But he didn't always use that authority. He could say, this is what you must do. But he didn't always say that. And his letter to his dear friend Philemon, which he sent in the hands of Philemon's escaped slave, he said, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ. He goes on to say, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. 
who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. This is a different nuance from imploring. There's a desperation with imploring here. There's this, hey, come on, man. Think about our relationship. Think about all that I've done for you and you've done for me. Would you, would you do this for me? Would you do what is right? Elders have delegated authority to exhort and even lovingly command to do uh, what is right by Christ. But wisdom in many situations calls not for heavy-handed exhortation, but for a soft-hearted appeal. Believers, ha- or excuse me, elders have to discern when to come alongside someone, asking them to do something they know is difficult and appeal to them based on what God, God's word says. When a spouse has violated their covenant and the Lord brings them to repentance, the spouse who has been sinned against is called by God to forgive. That is a biblical requirement, a biblical mandate. But it would be harmful to the soul of the spouse who's been sinned against if an elder just looked sternly at them and said, you must forgive. No, that elder must come alongside and enter into their suffering, enter into their grief and brokenness and bring them along with the ministry and the comfort of Christ. And when their soul is prepared, then say, now this is what Christ calls you to. I say again that this is not at all exhaustive of an elder's responsibility in terms of ministering the truth. But you can see how important it is for elders to know God's word and to have Christ-like character and to have the wisdom to know how to minister the truth of God in the variety of situations they find themselves in. Now, this responsibility is so serious that Paul made this declaration here at the end of 2 Timothy, which we read uh, a little bit ago. At the end of that letter, he says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Whatever else Paul says after that, you know this is serious. He's basically saying, I call God to witness in what I'm about to charge you with. Jesus Christ is listening. And so whatever I say, know that he's heard that I told this to you. And so he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience and instruction. Elders must be able to minister the truth. The third requirement in our text, which is the second primary role of elders, is not only must they be able to minister the truth, but elders must be able to defend the truth. They must be able to defend the truth. Look again at how Paul articulates this at the end of verse 9. He says, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The word refute is the idea of, of bringing something to light, of it exposing and making clear that which was unclear. And specifically, elders are called to refute those and expose those and bring to light anyone who contradicts sound doctrine. That's the way Paul has emphasized this. Again, he, has, he said there to refute those who contradict. 
There's a very short line, though, between the people who contradict and the contradiction itself. It's possible to expose and refute and rebuke sound doc- or unsound doctrine and expose it for what it is without necessarily identifying who it is who's promoting that teaching. But it's impossible to refute those who teach false doctrine without making clear what is false in their teaching. Paul says that both are necessary. Now, there are some who would say that the, the, it, that it's wrong to name people and call them out in public. They often say that Matthew 18 would require that if we ever disagree with anyone, we should come to them privately. When I worked at Grace to You and oversaw the internet ministry and saw what was going on on the internet with regard to John MacArthur's ministry, people would often re- publicly rebuke John MacArthur for publicly rebuking false teachers. I hope you can see the irony of, of that reality. But there is biblical precedent for not just warning the church about false teaching, but about uh, of naming or identifying the false teachers themselves. We could talk about Jesus, who even though he never named a specific individual, he did identify a class of people. In Matthew 23, he said, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. And then he went on in this public teaching to excoriate the Pharisees and the scribes. And he pronounced woes, declarations of judgment on them. And again, that was very public. Paul not only identified groups of people like the Judaizers in Galatians, but he also named specific individuals at various times. Now, we should understand that often when he named individuals, it was because those specific individuals were having an influence in the lives or church of the people he was writing to. For example, in 1 Timothy 1, Paul wrote to Timothy, who was an elder at Ephesus, And he said, some have rejected the faith and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Apparently, these are two men who were part of the church of Ephesus, at least at one time, and yet they departed from the faith and were now false teachers and yet were somehow influencing the church. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul identifies two historical false teachers. He names Janus and Jambres, names that we actually don't find earlier in Scripture, and these were apparently men who were in Pharaoh's court opposing Moses. And there are some others named in his various letters as well. Paul didn't always name people. He spoke a lot against false teaching and only sometimes named individuals. And I think a good argument can be made that the primary time, that the times that he named individuals, the purpose was to illustrate the kind of false teachers like with Janus and Jambres, or to identify those specific individuals who were impacting the local church that he was writing to, as in the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, the difficulty today is that false teachers from anywhere in the world can influence anybody with an internet connection. Christian bookstores, which of course now are almost entirely online, are notorious for promoting word-faith theology and prosperity gospel preachers. 
many Christian publishers are exclusively concerned with profits. And so anyone they think will make the money is allowed to publish a book and call it Christian. Those who produce Christian media often look to Christian celebrities, the best-selling authors who tend to be false teachers, not always. And they look to those individuals to be their guides and their consultants. There are fads and movements that are constantly pressing in on the church. And so it's really impossible for any elder, any single man or individual to keep up with what's going on and to warn the church about everything. And that's not the role. But when doctrinal error or specific teacher is influencing those under the care of that elder, that's when elders are called to speak up. This is precisely the instruction that Paul gives to Titus here in the second half of this chapter, which we'll study next time. There were actual false teachers teaching very clear and specific false teaching, and Paul charged Titus to appoint men as elders in the various cities throughout Crete who could address and silence, as we read, these false teachers. This responsibility to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine adds to the list of qualifications this implicit requirement that you have to be able to discern between truth and error. Not everybody can do that. It's one thing to minister the truth and to teach sound doctrine. One can positively promote and advance the truth without being aware of the ways in which false teachers manipulate and distort the truth. Perhaps another way to say it is one can do a lot of true teaching, but have sufficiently limited understanding of the truth such that error goes unnoticed. Hypothetically, someone could speak up in the midst of a small group meeting, Bible study, and say something erroneous, and nobody in the room is aware of what they actually said, or at least what it, the significance of it. Or one might be able to identify error and say, that's wrong, that's not what the Bible says, but again, have sufficiently limited understanding to know even how to respond or how to correct it. Just to give you an example from a conversation I had recently, uh, you may know that there is a huge disagreement among professing believers as to what does it mean that husbands are the head of the wife. That's a statement that Paul makes very clear in Ephesians 5.22 when he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. There are those, and we would be among them, who would say that what that means is that husbands have authority over their wives. And then there are those who would say that to be the head means that he is the source. The head means source. And I, wanna, I don't want to get into all of the implications or the, or the exact uh, meaning of that. But the purpose of saying that is to say husbands don't have authority over their wife. The egalitarian view, which says that there's no distinctions between men and women in their roles in the church and in the home, requires that head in Ephesians 5.22 means source and not authority. If it doesn't mean head, if it does mean authority, then an egalitarian who believes the Bible has to change their view. Or they just have to say, that passage isn't right. Paul was wrong about that. And there are those who say that. 
Now, the person I was speaking to used this argument that they had recently learned to explain why they were moving away from complementarianism. They had learned that apparently kephale, head, means source. So I'm curious, how would you, just think in your own mind, how would you respond to that argument? If someone said that to you, what would you say in response? Some scholars say that head means authority. Some say that head means source. How are we to know what it means? Well, I simply responded to this friend, and they are a dear friend. What's your understanding of Ephesians 1.22? And their response was like, I have no idea what that verse says. So we turned a couple pages back and read it. And it says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Subjection under the feet and head over all things. This is referring to the Father placing Christ over all things and having all things under his feet. That is an explicit statement of authority. And there, there is no other meaning besides authority in that verse. So when Paul, in the same letter, uses the same words and the same relationship, Christ is head over the church, as an explanation of the dynamic of the relationship between husband and wife, you can't get around that it means authority. There is no other way to say, oh no, it means something completely different in this verse. I know it's the same words. I know it's the same relationship, but it means something else. There is no way to say that. Now that's a small example, but the point is elders have to have sufficient understanding of Scripture to know how to respond to the misunderstandings, to the error of those under their care. They have to be able to identify and expose and correct false teaching. Now the goal is not to shame those who are in error. The goal is to give them a better understanding of the truth. We see this in 2 Timothy 2.25 where it says, The Lord's bondservant must, be, uh, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. That's the goal, repentance and the knowledge of the truth. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that elders have to know everything. That's not possible. But it does mean that they have to have a strong foundation and can address the most common errors and be able to quickly study when the need arises. Over the last 2,000 years since the New Testament was written, there have arisen innumerable false teachers. But the, the kinds of contradictions that are significant and meaningful are relatively few. And people misunderstand and interpret a passage here or there. We all do that from time to time. But the real contradictions of sound doctrine tend to focus on the doctrines of the person of Christ, the veracity of Scripture, the nature of salvation, the message of the gospel, and other key issues that tend to define those who depart from the faith. In the early days of the church, the church was confronted with a question of the nature of salvation. Is circumcision required for salvation for Gentiles? Are Christians required to keep the law? And then as Christianity spread throughout the Greek and the Roman worlds, 
uh, and pagans would come into the church, there was the temptation to syncretism and, and questions surrounded the person of Christ. Did he just appear to be human or was he truly human? Did, is he truly God or is he a demigod? Is the human body inherently evil and therefore asceticism is the pathway to higher spirituality? These are all questions that the early church had to wrestle with. Over time, as more Christians uh, were spread around the world, questions surrounded the, the documents that were available to Christians. Which ones were truly apostolic? Which ones were inspired? And which ones were just the helpful thoughts of men? Now, obviously, time doesn't allow us to go throughout the rest of history, but every point in history, there have been challenges to the truth. And so there's always been a need for elders to refute those who contradict. That's why here at Hope Bible Church, we've always had a rather rigorous process to train and equip elders and prepare them for that role. Not only have men been required to demonstrate faithfulness in the home and faithfulness in their ministries, but they've also had to read books and take classes. And then at the end of all of that, they've had to have basically an oral exam before a panel of elders who question them on their Bible knowledge, on their theology, on their pastoral ministry understanding. And if that sounds like too much, think of it this way. In most churches, there's this fundamental understanding that if you're going to be hired as a pastor, there is a bare minimum requirement that you've been to seminary, which means that you've spent three or four years of full-time school reading dozens and dozens of books. You've written hundreds and hundreds of pages of papers. You've taken innumerable exams. Uh, and you've demonstrated that you understand Scripture. Obviously not perfectly, not exhaustively, but you have the tools and the foundation to teach the Scripture. But when it comes to appointing elders who are biblically required to fulfill the exact same function, many of these same churches say, you don't have to do any papers. You don't have to read any books. You don't have to take any exams. We're not even going to test your knowledge of Scripture. You can just be an elder. That's not helpful to the church. And it causes men to find themselves in a situation where they are responsible before the Lord, and yet they are ill-equipped to respond to the challenges that sound doctrine, uh, that challenges to, to sound doctrine that come up. Now, some might say that we here have too high a standard for those who would teach a Bible study or teach classes or become an elder or a deacon. And obviously our process is not an inerrant process and we can have a good discussion about what are helpful and wise ways and the requirements we should have. But the work of elders has eternal significance. We're not just making widgets here. We are working with the souls of people. And the work that we do as elders that we're responsible for before the Lord can bring joy and peace and strength to the lives of believers by the power of the Spirit. Or it can destroy people's lives. Now, in conclusion, Alan and I and anyone else who takes this calling seriously would say along with Paul, who is adequate for these things? We are but mere men. We are beset with weaknesses and we are just as susceptible to the lies of the world and the flesh and the devil as anybody else. We are imperfect. We lack wisdom. We have significant limitations. 
But you know what? That's by design. That's by design. Paul also said, we have this treasure, the word of God, in earthen vessels. Meaning that which is temporary, that which is breakable, that which is weak. So that the surpassing greatness of the power of God will be of God, I should say, and not from ourselves. Anything good that comes from the work of an elder, from his, his ministry of the truth, is not the result of his own strength and abilities and knowledge. It is the result of the work of the Spirit showing his power through the weakness of a man. Jesus designed the church to be led by men with these qualifications that we've seen here, which can only be manifest through his power. And Jesus designed the church to be led by men fulfilling these roles, which can only be done through his power. And so I would say, may the Lord raise up more men who are inadequate, who are weak, and yet who have committed themselves and devoted themselves to the truth so that the power of God might be revealed through them as they serve the great shepherd. Let's pray. Our Lord, as I think on these words, there is great conviction that strikes my own heart because I know how much I fail, how much I lack wisdom. And so I am thankful, as your word says, that you show your power through us. And I ask, Lord, that for the glory of Christ, would you raise up men in this church in whom you would give the desire to do this work because Christ is the greatest master we could ever have. The gospel is the greatest message we could ever proclaim. And the full truth of your word is the greatest revelation that we could ever speak. We do these things because we love you and we love your people. So keep us faithful and use us to accomplish your purposes. In Christ's name, amen.